Um, yeah, as, as you suggested there, the, this is one of the uh, one of the sessions that um, links directly to the quotation marks around British in the title of the uh, of, of the conference. And um, those those little marks of punctuation actually lead to um, some quite um, large and complex issues. I think both in terms of uh, perceptions of the uh, First World War generally um, and also the, the sense of the kind of canon of, of war poetry and the way that that has shifted and changed uh, over the years. Um, th- th- there are some crude numbers which, which kind of indicate the, uh, the scale of, 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 of what's embedded in those quotation marks. Um, so, for example, 458,000 Canadian troops um, in the First World War. Uh, 332,000 Australian troops uh, fought, 136,000 South African troops, and almost a million of the Indian Army were involved in one way or another in in the First World War. So the the figures are huge just in terms of the amount of uh, men and auxiliaries uh, that that came from the colonies, dominions, and different kind of aspects of theatre. African troops, Caribbean troops as well, uh, in in smaller numbers. And, and there's also a sense that those figures don't suggest the kind of um, involvement of those troops in very particular and very significant moments, um, in, in, particularly in the Western Front, actually. Um, so the, the, the Canadian involvement on Vimy Ridge in 1917 um, was a, 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 a kind of sense of their importance to what was happening at that point in the war. And likewise, the, the South African Brigade in, at, uh, at Delville Wood, 1916, in which uh, they were almost destroyed. So they were involved in, in kind of iconic moments of the military campaigns. Uh, and Australians, and we'll come back to this a little later on, with their, their own um, involvement in, in Gallipoli and the Dardanelles, which led to casualties of 59,000 deaths um, from, that, from that involvement. So the... Em- embedded in the quotation marks are, are these, these kind of catastrophic experiences and also involvement of, um, of, of, of significant uh, military operations. It also suggests, I think, as well, that that sense of um, historical shifts in perception which developed over the years, the, kind of the century since the beginning of the, the First World War, in the way in which um, routinely in the First World War the war was seen as an imperial war. Uh, it was a war in defence of empire, not in defence of nation. Um, and that, I think, has, has, for historical reasons, has been kind of diluted, in a sense, in the way in which the war is now thought about as a kind of national war, in some senses, and not so much, anyway, as, as a war involving empire and, mm. in, and imperial um, perceptions. Uh, and that, I think, you could argue, also affects the way in which war literature and war poetry has again shifted uh, its, its, its emphasis. Uh, and the way in which, over the years, the, the, the poetry of the First World War that's studied and thought about and written about um, becomes a kind of involvement with personal experiences on the one side and a sense of a kind of national involvement as well, particularly to do with Englishness and the way in which the poets, Sassoon, Owen, and, and the, the kind of canon of war poetry 
are perceived as being closely linked to changes in perception of, of nationhood, uh, English nationhood, and arguably British nationhood, although that, of course, is always a problematic concept um, of its own. Um, what I want to do in the time allotted is to, um, is to reconvene, if you like, a sense of the First World War as an imperial conflict, and one which involved a range of different voices, a range of different nations and cultures together. And so I'm going to bring together four poets, and I say reconvene, actually to convene, in a way in which if you, if you, if you look at the anthologies of the First World War, there are, of the time, collections of poetry that seek to represent a kind of imperial vision. But the poems in those collections tend to be a kind of uniform discourse of the empire and imperialism, a kind of very public and very kind of rhetorical <coughs> version of the empire with a capital E. What I want to convene are four poets who I think have very distinctive voices um, and operate in very distinctive cultural environments. Um, and which together, in a sense, provide uh, a version of empire which is much more volatile and much more um, nuanced, in a sense, than the kind of imperial rhetoric that, um, that if, you if you go to the First World War anthologies of empire poetry, that you find there. But there, there, there are how many aims? Four aims, really, I suppose, to un underline what I'm going to talk about in the poetry that I'm going to talk about. One is the, the idea of canonicity, the, the, the sense of a canon, which in war poetry has always been of interest and has always been a kind of shifting, changing sense of what constitutes this strange kind of category. And to bring into that, that canon some voices which are, which are actually on the sidelines if, 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 or peripheral voices, if you like, and think about what that poetry might have to say with the poems that are more usually represented as being a, a, a canon of war poetry. There are also, I think, questions about value, which has, again, always been embedded with, with the idea of war poetry. Are you reading war poetry because it's a kind of historical interest? Are you reading war poetry because it's a kind of witness? Or are you reading war poetry because actually it represents some kind of poetic value in itself? And these poets, I think, bring different kinds of challenges to that. Um, two of the poets write in, in dialect, in, in vernacular dialect, which has always been problematic in poetry. Um, but they, they are oral poets in some senses. And the th one, another poet who certainly doesn't write in dialect is nonetheless a kind of oral poet. So it brings to, to bear some of more, more, more general questions about, um, about value. I also want to trace in them some political developments, because one argument about war poetry is that it's always been, in some senses, political poetry. And if we look at the voices of uh, the poets that, that uh, were, were from the Dominions and from India, um, there is... I would argue, a kind of tracing of political developments going on in their, in their verse. Um, different ones to those that we're perhaps used to in a, in a British or English context. 
And I also want to consider more than is perhaps often done, original places of publication. So to look at and talk a little about journals and magazines. Because in these contexts, of all the poets that I'm actually going to talk about, um, where they were published, who published them, and crucially who read them, affect all those aspects about culture and the kind of politics in which they were involved. It's also true of English and British poets, of course. Uh, we, we, we tend to see poetry as kind of floating free on a, in a collected edition or an anthology, but actually where they were first published um, is always instructive about the kind of frame in which um, that can be interpreted. So, the poets that um, I want to look at uh, each have a kind of representative poem or two on the sheet are uh, an Australian poet called Clarence Dennis, C.J. Dennis, as he always um, signed himself. Um, a, a poet who is assigned to Canada, but there are some difficulties with that assignation, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, Robert Service, Robert W. Service. Um, a poet from India, from West Bengal particularly, Rabindranath Tagore. And the, the poet I want to start with, um, who is in some senses kind of exceptional to all the things that I've just been talking about, but who nonetheless raises the problems, I think, of, of imperial poetry, what its significance is, and what might be investigated in terms of its meanings. And that's John McCrae. And John McCrae is uh, perhaps the only poet really of the selection who, you can say, wrote a famous poem and a poem which is canonic in the traditions of war poetry. And that's in Flanders Fields. I'll read the poem and then, um, and, and then set out the problems as I, I, I see them. Um, this is the, the it's pu first published in Punch in 1915, and I'll come back to that. And if you find your way down to the bottom of the third column, there is in Flanders Fields. In Flanders fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Macrae uh, was Canadian and um, was uh, actually a, um, in the medical corps of, um, of the Canadian uh, Expeditionary Force. And he, um, he wrote one of the, as I say, one of the first iconic war poems, which is this one, uh, which is still anthologised and, 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 and still seen as kind of representative. And in a sense, its reputation rests upon a kind of very neat and compressed articulation of some key imagery. Um, so the evocation of Flanders fields, that sense of, of, of Flanders and the, that kind of rural aspect with, with fields there, battlefields, yes, but also that sense of, um, of the pastoral that is there. Um, it's, it's one of the first poems to use poppies as, uh, a, uh, a, as, a, as a symbol 
of, of, of the war. It, it has the imagery of crosses, which again, of course, are going to pr- proliferate as a, a, a poetic device. It even has larks, uh, which, as people were talking about yesterday, appear in Rosenberg and, uh, uh, and elsewhere. And of course, it has that, that, that kind of contrast to the guns. So embedded there, almost imagist precision, are the resources of, of First World War poetry uh, as, as we know them. But for McRae, I suspect that is not the key part of the poem, or the key part of even the first stanza. I think the key word in the first stanza of this poem is our. The voice of the poem is <coughs> personal and representative. And one of the questions that the poem raises is, is who that, that us is. And as the poem goes on, you find out as well that the poem, which looks like an elegy to begin with, is not an elegy. It's a minatory poem. It's a poem of warning, and it's a poem actually of embedded threat. So that final stanza, take up our quarrel with the foe, speaking on behalf of the dead. To you from the failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. So there is an implicit threat there that the dead are going to stay undead until the quarrel that they began is resolved. It's a threatening poem, and uh, McRae's poetry, there's not much of it, but it is uh, similarly um, without compromise. And the the compromise is embedded in that idea about a covenant. Uh, Actually, oddly enough, Sassoon returns to ideas about covenant, I think, later in the war. Um, but McRae is, is dealing with it here. Um, and the covenant, I would argue, is an imperial covenant. What McRae is writing about here is a position which is the, the, the empire, the imperial forces, in a kind of bargain with the motherland, uh, which he certainly saw England as. Um, a little about McRae, uh, because he was interesting and exceptional in, in, in many ways. Uh, he is exceptional, I think, as, as uh, an articulate imperial poet and imperialist poet, um, which is unusual in, in, in the terms of, um, of the First World War. He's also perhaps the highest-ranking war poet. He's a lieutenant colonel. Uh, and we tend to think about war poets as being lieutenants or, or privates. Or, but a lieutenant colonel, McRae certainly was. And he was also a Boer War veteran. Um, so, and he wrote poetry about the Boer War. Um, so again, we're used to poetry coming from the First World War and the Second World War, but uh, here's another kind of imperial conflict that was uh, of interest to McCray. Um So it's an imperial poem, but it's a period, an imperial poem which is about anxiety. And again, this is something, I think, which uh, is embedded in, in, in the, 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 the discourse of empire, in this period. There's another poem on the sheet, I won't read it, but uh, the title tells you, uh, written about the same time, it might be a little later actually, called The Anxious Dead. And that sense of anxiety is embedded in the kind of imperious vision that McRae represents, I think. There is a fear in Flanders Fields that the covenant is not going to be kept, which is why the final stanza has that kind of warning. 
And so empire is not something which is comforting for an imperialist like Macrae. It is anxious that somehow, in some way, it is not going to be kept. Um, if you read the, um, the collected poems of Macrae, uh, published in 1919, I think, uh, and it's, it's, sort of, it's a small volume, uh, there are not many poems, and it's kind of padded out with a, an essay by a man called Sir Angus MacPhail, who was also a kind of Canadian um, um, dignitary. And MacPhail suggests that, uh, that Macrae's poetry emerges from crisis, that the experience of the Canadian troops um, in the expeditionary force when they came over in the uh, 19, end of 1914, 1915, was of disaster. They were involved in some catastrophic battles um, in which their losses were heavy and there was the sense that the war in which they were involved was in danger of being lost. MacPhail says this, To a sensitive and foreboding mind, there were signs and signs that it would be given to this generation to hear the pillar and fabric of empire come crashing into the abysm of chaos. Foreboding, warning, crashing, abysm, chaos. And so empire becomes not this kind of straightforward thing which is there and the sun will never set on it, but even from someone who believed deeply in it, something which was in crisis and which was endangered by what was happening in Europe uh, in that period. There's also the oddity as well of where this is published. This is published in Punch, and that might not seem the obvious journal for a war poem. Um, it's, it's embedded there, anonymously published, third column, page 468, above a joke about Kidderminster, which, to be quite honest, I've never got. Um, and there it is. But there is a kind of logic to that publication, in the sense that Macrae does not send this to a Canadian journal, and as we've seen a bit, there were opportunities to do that. It's to a metropolitan English imperial journal at the centre of the empire, as Macphail says. That's where he would want it published. So the actual act of publication in Punch, which seems so strange, is an act of affirmation, if you like, of where that poem should be. And it's a poem of warning at the very centre of metropolitan England. So there are kind of nuances to, the, to, to Macrae's work that the... the, the, the um, the, 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 the kind of apparently straightforward politics um, might uh, disguise in some senses. I'm going to move to a very different poet and a very different world, and that is Australia. Uh, you can't get, I don't think, more opposite <coughs> approaches to poetry than John McRae and C.J. Dennis. But both of them were poets that worked through a particular moment of crisis. And they responded very differently to it, but nonetheless, in some senses, they shared, although the problem would admit it, a common sense of change or the potential <coughs> of change. Because Dennis's poems, um, the, the, the poems that are, are extracted on the sheet, come from a book called The Moods of Ginger Mick, um, written, uh, published in 1916. And the context for that is the very particular Australian experience of the First World War, which was channeled through the Dardanelles. 
and particularly uh, the fighting that occurred around Gallipoli, uh, a peculiarly disastrous uh, campaign which kind of affected the way that um, Australia operated within, within the war and also developed uh, a sort of very individual sense of journey. So the journey of the Australian troops took a very particular form. They made a long sea voyage, they stayed in Egypt, and then they moved to, to Gallipoli. And in some senses their experience was that of trench warfare. Uh, Gallipoli was a, a, a trench conflict. But in other ways it was very separated from what was seen as the kind of dominant experience of, of the Western Front. Um, uh, a, a, an Australian poet who was very popular actually in Australia in the war called Liam Gellert wrote a, uh, Songs of the Campaign and what Gellert does is to, to use that journey as a kind of uh, mythic voyage Paul Fussell writes about kind of myth- mythological uh, journeys uh, which become uh, associated with places and so forth and Gellert is a journey in which uh, he really wants to go to the Western Front but duty and empire forces him to go to the east and so he accepts that as a kind of imperial uh, demand which which he meets the same voyage comes in Dennis's poem um, collection but it's a different significance and it's a different significance because of his uh, commitment to uh, a world view or a nation a national view that was um, characteristic of the journal in which he published. And that was a journal called The Bulletin. Um, was um, still published in Australia till, till a few years ago. If you read the copies of The Bulletin on a very scrappy kind of microfilm, uh, which are available in the British Library, you see a banner across it in the, war, in the wartime which says, The National Australian Newspaper, Australia for the White Man. And it's a politics that is populist on the one hand and racist on the other. And there is a kind of real problematic context for a lot of what uh, Dennis writes. The, the, the poet who uh, was most associated with uh, the bulletin was a poet called Henry Lawson, who was a actually really interesting poet and short story writer. And he writes about the bush uh, and the kind of Australianness of the outback and the Australianness of the, um, the indigenous white dweller in the outback. And in, in Lawson's uh, poetry, it's a kind of celebration of a kind of anarchy and um, roughness that was taking place uh, out there. And like, like the bulletin, he saw it as the kind of emergence of a particularly Australian identity. Not an imperial identity, an Australian identity. And that's something that's carried forward by Dennis. Lawson starts to write horribly imperialistic kind of poetry in the First World War. It's a kind of general decline, I think, of, of some, of some um, sort of him. But Dennis starts to write poetry which is not about the bush, but about the city. He writes about Melbourne, the slums of Melbourne. And basically what he does is to take the, the, kind of, the iconic bush figure and put him in the slums and to see the emergence of an Australia that is distinctively Australian like Lawson's outback but is becoming urban and therefore politically active you can't create a nation out of the outback you can create it out of a city and he's interested in that as a kind of operation so the moods of ginger Mick. Um, 
what he says about him uh, is in the introduction. Uh, just intro- uh, sorry about the Australian. Uh, just introduce me, Cobber, and the name is Ginger Mick, a rorty boy, a naughty boy with rude expressions thick in his casual conversation and the wicked sort of face that gives the sudden shudders to the law-abiding race. It's a ballad, and it's the ballad of uh, someone who hawks rabbits in, in the markets of the slums of Melbourne. But the story that happens to Ginger Mick, he goes on the journey, Liam Gellert's journey, to Gallipoli. And the journey is a, a kind of funny one, uh, and comic, and popular, and demotic in its expression. But it's also a political one. So here's a bit of uh, um, a poem called The Push. Uh, the Push is both a kind of military term for an advance, but also Australian for a scrap. Uh, and that's significant. It's good enough for all of them, as all of them have seen, since they've got the same glad clobber next to their skins. And the bloke who holds the boodle and the coot without a bee, why they knock around like little khaki twins. And they've got a common lingo, which is growing mighty thick with expressive contributions from the stocker, Ginger Mick. He has struck it for a moral. Ginger's found his game at last. He's took it like a duckling's take to drink. And he's slouching and he's grouching and he's loafing of the past. He's done with them and dumped them down the sink. He's a bright and shining sample of the theory that I hold, that every art that ever pumped is good for chunks of gold. And then you get, a, you get letters from Ginger Mick sent back to the, um, to the, to the author. It's truth. I've rung around my native land for close on 30 years, and I never knew what men me cobbers were. Never knew the toffs was white men till I met them over here. Blokes and coves I sort of snouted over there. Yeah, I loafed around my country, and I never knew her then, but the real book Australia's here among the fighting men. We've slung the swank for good and all. It don't fit in our plan to skite of birth and boodle is a crime. A man with us, why is a man? Because he is a man. And a real red-hot Australian every time. The dog and side and snobbery is down and out for keeps. It's grit and real good fellowship that gets your friends in eats. There's one, he doesn't talk a lot, he says his name is Trent. Just a private, but he knows his drill a tree. To stand off bloke, but real good pals with fellas in his tent. But his own his history has gotten beat. They reckon when he starts to bleed, he'll stain his khaki blue. And his lingo smells of Oxford. But he's good Australian too. <laughs> The, uh, the story of Ginger Mick is a kind of redemptive story uh, in, on the one hand. So Ginger, Ginger Mick's a fighter, he's violent, he's criminal, uh, all those kind of things. Uh, but going into the army and going to Gallipoli and fighting uh, makes him um, different and reforms him in some senses and makes him realise his own potential and his own identity. Part of the kind of irony of the poem is that actually... Uh, Mick is reckless, violent, and uh, willing to, to take all kinds of risks. And actually, that's ideal for an Australian army, uh, is the kind of point. But at the same time, there's a kind of politics to this, in that what Ginger Mick is learning, which Leon Gellert isn't, is to become Australian, not imperial. So the journey is towards Australia via the First World War, rather than to some sense of an imperial unity, uh, such as someone like John McCrae would wish for. So embedded in that, then, is a kind of different politics, and a politics of nationalism uh, that, was, that was embedded. Australia, twice in the First World War, rejected conscription, for example. And, and so there's that, that, that kind of alternative movement towards a nationhood uh, that, that was taking place there. The two final examples um, 
are in some senses very different and, again, have some kind of parallels and, and, and links. Um, and the, the, the one that is closest, I suppose, to, to Ginger Mick and to C.J. Dennis is Robert Service, um, who I've described as Canadian, and the magazine published in, the Claims magazine, um, class him as the Canadian Kipling. And that's partly because Service um, wrote the, the Yukon Ballads, uh, Songs of a Sourdough, uh, ballads about uh, the outback in, uh, in, in uh, the gold rush in, uh, in the Yukon in northern Canada. But, but he wasn't Canadian, he was from Preston, um, <laughs> with a Scottish background, and he went to Canada and um, came to France with an American Red Cross unit and then lived in France for the rest of his life. So he, he wasn't Canadian at all, really. Um, but he, he was published, as I say, in a, in a, in a, in a magazine called um, Maclean's Magazine. And Maclean's Magazine classed itself as a Canadian publication conducted on broadly national lines. Uh, it's a lot more polite than the bulletin um, was Maclean's Magazine. But what it printed were um, war poems of, of service, as I say, from a, uh, not from an army unit, but from a Red Cross unit. So again, that kind of fits with, with Macrae. Uh, and that kind of medical perspective but the poems are very different so um, in, in 1916 it published a, a poem uh, of Robert Service called Funk and here's a bit of it on page 3 and he never wrote in Canadian voices actually, it's all kind of Cockney um, or Scots uh, when your marabone seems holler and you're glad you ain't no taller and you're all a shaking like you had the chills when your skin creeps like a pullet and you're ducking all the bullets and your green is gorgonzola around the gills. When your legs seem made of jelly and you're squeamish in the belly and you want to turn about and do a bunk. For God's sake, kid, don't show it. Don't let your mates know it. You're just suffering from funk, funk, funk. It's a poem about cowardice or fear or some combination of that. And of course, we're familiar of, of that for that expression from, from Owen and, and Sassoon later on. But this is 1916 in a journal. And in some senses, you could argue service is, is using his uh, dissociation from nationality, from, uh, from, from the army itself. He's, he, he's the, the, the medical corps that he worked for was a kind of independent unit, so it wasn't really answerable in some ways. To develop a poetry that is popular, demotic, not really assigned to any particular national viewpoint, but through that is able to express some things which are very rare, actually, in the poetry or the public poetry uh, of this period. Um, the magazine kind of has to defend him. There are lots of editorials when they publish Robert Service um, poems, which talk about him being very patriotic and so forth. And then there's a poem about being afraid. There's also, not published actually in, uh, in Maclean's magazine, but in the collection, um, Rhymes of a Red Cross Man, um, which came out in the same year. Uh, I, I think a remarkable poem called A Song of the Sandbags. And it's, again, put in the voice of an ordinary soldier. And I'll just read the bit from the beginning and a bit of the end so you get the idea. No, Bill, I'm not just spooning out no patriotic tosh. The code behind the sandbags ain't a death or glory cuss. And though I strafe some good and hard, I didn't hate the Bosch. I guess they're mostly decent, just the same as most of us. I guess they loves their owns and kids. 
as much as you or me. And just the same as you or me, they'd rather shake than fight. And if we happened to be born on Berlin on the spree, we'd be out there with Hans and Fritz, dead sure that we was right. Um, towards the end, um, page five, they talk to England's glory and the holding of her trade, of empire and our destiny, until we're fair, I think it's flim flam, but it's film flam, is it, in the book? But for it's the like to that the bloody war is made, what I say is, empire and our destiny be damned. There's only one good cause, Bill, for poor blokes like us to fight, that's self-defence for half and own, and them that bears our name. And what, that's what I'm a-doing by the sandbags here tonight, but Fritz out there will tell you he's a-doing of the same. Staring over the sandbags, sick of the old damn thing, firing to keep myself awake, hearing the bullets sing, hiss, twang, sing, pang, saucy the bullets sing. Dreaming here by the sandbags of a day when war will cease, when Hans and Fritz and Bill and me will clink mugs in fraternity, and the brotherhood of labour will be the brotherhood of peace. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary poem in, in the sense of what it, what implied, what's implied by it. Uh, in the voice of an ordinary soldier who is rejecting quite explicitly certain kinds of rhetoric of empire, um, and also making that kind of common cause, which again we associate probably with later war poetry, between the two sides. Uh, and using um, an expression, the brotherhood of labour, which um, I'm not sure I've seen any, any other war poem, uh, that, that sense of a, a kind of politics, an internationalist politics of fraternity, uh, that got um, people like John McLean imprisoned in Glasgow about the same time. Um, so in, in that kind of demotic voice and that kind of popular um, poetry, certain kinds of politics were able to be expressed. Uh, and probably because they were being published in Canada and not London, there is that, that, that kind of flexibility maybe uh, for service to do that. As I say, he never wrote as a Canadian but in some senses, the Canadian context provided him with some opportunities to write like this. The final figure is probably the most curious of all. Um, and that's a, um, a poet, um, Ravindranath Tagore, who, if we're thinking about exceptional war poets, uh, he's probably the only war poet who won a Nobel Prize, 1913. And probably the only war poet of a knighthood, although someone else might, there might be another one, I don't know. He was Sir Rabindranath Tagore, knighted in 1915. And uh, he's a poet who had an enormous reputation at the outbreak of the First World War and has disappeared in some senses, I think, from kind of common uh, knowledge. Lots of musicians set his poems to music and so on. Um, he was celebrated particularly by W.B. Yeats, but also read by Wilfred Owen um, as well, I believe. And Yeats celebrated in him an innocence, a simplicity that one does not find elsewhere in literature. Um, Tagore wrote in Bengali and then translated it into, into English. Um, and as we'll see in a minute, the poems are very, um, very vague and, and interestingly so, I think, in some ways. So at the beginning of the war, uh, he is celebrated as uh, the imperial poet in some senses. And the, the fact that he was uh, Bengali, uh, of course, gave that, that link to, to India. And in, the, um, in the 1950, August 1915, the Times 
um, prints as a, a supplement a collection of war poems. Um, it's quite hard to get hold of, but the, the, it's really interesting to see what they considered war poems uh, in nine, August 1915. So there's Wake Up England by Robert Bridges. Um, there's Hardy, Song of the Soldiers. There's Kipling's For All We Have an R. There's Lawrence Binion's For the Fallen. Uh, there's Alfred Noyes' The Searchlights. And there's Rabindranath Tagore's The Trumpet. And it's, it's a poem which is published in the supplement with a, with a kind of picture, and I couldn't get a photograph of it, otherwise I've used it, of, um, of Sikh troops attacking uh, a, a windmill on the Western Front. It's a very strange picture to go with the trumpet. But here's a little bit of the poem, giving you a taste of Rabindranath Tagore, Rabindranath, sorry, but the concentration. Thy uh, trumpet lies in the dust, the wind is weary, the light is dead. Ah, the evil day. Come fighters carrying your flags and singers with your songs. Come pilgrims hurrying on your journey. The trumpet lies in the dust waiting for us. I was on my way to the temple with my evening offerings, seeking for the heaven of rest after the day's dusty toil, hoping my hurts would be healed and stains in my garments washed white when I found thy trumpet lying in the dust. Has it not been the time for me to light my lamp? Has my evening not come to bring me sleep? O oh, thou blood-red rose, where have my poppies faded? I was certain my wanderings were over and my debts all paid when suddenly I came upon thy trumpet lying in the dust. I'll move to the final stanza. From thee I had asked peace only to find shame. Now I stand before thee. Help me to don my armour. Let hard blows of trouble strike fire into my life. Let my heart beat in pain, beating the drum of thy victory. My hands shall be utterly emptied to take up thy trumpet. And it's quite characteristic of, uh, of Tagore uh, in terms of its kind of shifting vagueness, in a sense, as to what this is actually about and what picking up a trumpet might mean. Again, the context is important. So uh, published in the Times, that seems to imply with the, the military picture attached to it and the, the poems alongside it, that we're, what we're talking about here is a kind of realisation of... <coughs> Uh, the necessity of military action, uh, which surprises the speaker of the poem, but which he realises by the end of the poem that he has to take up that duty in some senses. So again, it, it kind of fits with Macrae and, and his idea of that, that sense of a, a, a kind of duty uh, embedded there. Um, he was knighted the following year uh, as a kind of an official sanction of being a poet who was, who was obviously part of the war effort and certainly allowed his poems to be published in that kind of context. But the curious thing about Tagore is that um, his poems kind of move from place to place, uh, sometimes in different versions, sometimes with different titles, sometimes with no title at all. And so the trumpet finds its way to uh, a journal in Calcutta called uh, the Modern Review, English language journal. And the Modern Review is um, linked to uh, radical political movements in Bengal at that time, um, <coughs> and also linked to Congress, the, the party which um, uh, would, would, would eventually uh, take power in India many years later on. 
And so there comes a kind of shift in perspective when the same poem is represented in an <coughs> Indian periodical to the way that it's represented in uh, the Times. And Tagore makes no explicit statement about that uh, 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 at that point, but he starts to publish, not in the Times, but from around 1916 in the Modern Review. And what he writes in the Modern Review in terms of poetry is in its rhetoric, in its vagueness, in its kind of shifting uh, language, in those long, languorous lines, pretty much the same. He doesn't change like other war poets from writing one way to another. So there's a poem um, of 1918, a little extract from it. Thou hast given us to live, let us uphold this honour with all our strength and will, for thy glory rests upon the glory that we are. Therefore in thy name we oppose the power that would plant its banner upon our soul. Our voyage is begun, Captain, we bow to thee. The storm howls and the waves are wicked, but we sail on. That could be published in the Times with a picture of uh, Sikh troops storming a window. Uh, actually, it's called India's Prayer. And by this time, Tagore had committed himself completely to uh, uh, Indian independence and an anti-imperialist position. You wouldn't know it from the poems but you would know it from the frame, from the essays that he wrote surrounding that poem. So he starts to think about what he calls the hydraulic press of imperialism and to see that the war is merely a kind of product of what he terms nationalism. Uh, nationalism inevitably leads to war, to conflict and to imperial oppression. And he writes, actually, one of the most radical political tracts of the First World War. It's a kind of collection of lectures that he gave in Japan, very strangely, uh, in around 1917. But there, he starts to articulate a position which doesn't change his poetry, but changes how you have to read his poetry, given the context that he provides. And I'll end on just on, on, a, on a couple of quotations from Nationalism. The nation with all its paraphernalia of power and prosperity, its flags and pious hymns, its blasphemous prayers in the churches and the literary mock thunders of its patriotic bragging cannot hide the fact that the nation is the greatest evil for the nation, that all its precautions are against it and any new birth of its fellow in the world is always followed in its mind by the dread of a new peril. Those who are enamoured of their political power and gloat over their extension of dominion over foreign races, gradually surrender their own freedom and humanity to the organisations necessary for holding other peoples in slavery. They're incredibly radical statements of a kind of anti-imperialist position <coughs> and also a kind of anti-nationalist position that he was making in that journey through the First World War. In 1919, very interestingly, uh, he asked to, for the, the knighthood to be removed um, uh, after the, um, the Amritsar massacre and his request was denied so Rabindranath stayed so Rabindranath uh, I'll end there and I hope what I've done is to give a, a, a sense of, of different voices different kinds of traditions different kinds of cultural contexts and that sense of imperialism and the empire being both a kind of forming context of First World War writing and also within it a sense of the kind of developing trajectories, voices, poetry, styles and politics that the First World War both represented and in some ways enabled. Thanks.